Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the Emily Program, where we put it all together for you. Piecemeal discusses topics related to eating disorders, body image issues, and how society may contribute to distorted thinking. Please keep in mind that we may discuss difficult topics and we ask that you use your own discretion when listening and that you speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lampert. Today, we are excited and honored to have Madison Hansen here to share her recovery story. Madison is the daughter of Holly Thorson, who you may remember from episode 85, where she shared her experience as a mother supporting a child with an eating disorder. In addition to being Holly's daughter, Madison is a senior at North Dakota State University, double majoring in social work and human development and family science. She plans to pursue a master's degree in social work after graduation next spring. Madison's specific interest lies in macro social work and advocacy for stronger mental health laws to protect those struggling with mental illness. Outside of school, she enjoys yoga, traveling, and spending time with her dog, Leo. Thanks for being here, Madison. We're so excited to have you. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Jillian. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. So let's just dive in. Your mom did an exceptional job of telling us about your eating disorder, but for those of of you know our listeners who haven't had a chance to listen to her episode, let's venture back to the time you first started to struggle. Can you share your perspective on living with an eating disorder and how would you describe that time of your life? I guess living with an eating disorder, it obviously, you know, wasn't the best. It was a really dark time in my life, just a time of, you know, false happiness. And I just wasn't myself at that point. It had kind of taken over, you know, every aspect of my life, whether it be, you know, my education, my happiness, my health, friendships, kind of just affected everything and was really just kind of the center of my world at the time and for those years. Yeah, that's, I think you're giving voice to what a people often experience is sort of this dichotomy of like it it's a like you said a false happiness like there's things that feel good and there's things that feel just terrible during that that period of time and mm-hmm. we know your eating disorder wasn't wasn't the only mental health challenge you faced um what role if any do you see the depression or anxiety played in your eating disorder so i think the depression is actually you know what caused my eating disorder i became just severely depressed really at a young age. I was like 12 or 13. Uh, I remember just, you know, there wasn't like an obvious reason for it. I had just kind of lost um, happiness in day-to-day activities. And it kind of quickly became a thing where I was even just, could say almost fixated on dying. And, you know, it wasn't really that I wanted to die. I just wanted the pain to end. But uh, so it kind of just, it started like that. And uh, the eating disorder kind of started, I guess, creeping in as a way for me to cope. Like I remember, you know, the first time when I would start like restricting, it wasn't necessarily to lose weight. It was more so to like play a part in ending my life. And then I found out that it offered almost like relief from my depression symptoms. Like it numbed me in a way that I didn't have to feel so much pain. Like, yeah, I didn't really feel a lot of happiness either, but at least I wasn't feeling like as miserable. And so it kind of just started as a coping skill, honestly, for the depression. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because we know that, you know, in the in the brain, when people aren't well-nourished, the, the brain is really uh, focused, you know, tries to be focused on getting food, which ends up having people sort of 
feel even more focused on food and numbs out kind of everything else yeah. uh, that just creates in many ways people describe as sort of a a calm or a fuzzy time or just a time when the world kind of focuses on a lot less than than when they are uh, better nourished and that can feel kind of alluring and and like you're saying kind of give relief in a way oh yeah yeah exactly and uh one thing i do also remember is that kind of as i got you know like started like restricting more in like using these symptoms i did start to experience it was almost like you know, like an adrenaline rush or something, or like a little sense of happiness, like I was doing something right. And like that sense of ha- that false sense of happiness really is kind of what got me in, like got me addicted. Like I started, it had been, you know, like felt like years since I had felt true happiness. And all of a sudden from doing these behaviors, I started feeling it. So obviously I just kind of like kept doing them, kept doing them, not really thinking anything of it. Yeah, of course. That, I mean, that makes total sense, right? Given your experience of it. And it it really kind of highlights how how tricky it can be when you have multiple sort of multiple conditions can make the the resolution of those illnesses more complex and, and more challenging and, and make the recovery process more complicated. You know, we think a lot about how do we provide treatment that sort of addresses multiple things happening at the same time, not just one illness at a time. We know that your your mom played a, an important role in, as sort of an advocate for you in getting the care you deserved. And to your point, we know that it's also hard. Uh, eating disorders as illnesses are not easily persuaded um, to to sort of let go and and help the person to engage in recovery. It can be really difficult to accept help and support. How did that work for you? Tell us how you were ultimately able to to really accept that help and and move into into the recovery journey. Uh, to be honest, I didn't accept it at all at first. It actually like it took multiple years, I guess. And, you know, I just, I didn't believe anything that anyone was telling me. One thing that I actually found very interesting, um, you know, with touching on the whole person uh, aspect of treatment when you have um, like multiple different things kind of going on. uh, I was really shocked actually that, you know, I had been to place after place, just multiple different ones. And the EMILY program was actually the only place that incorporated that aspect of like whole person approach. And I, you know, I found the program very helpful, but I specifically think it was just as you said, like because of this different approach that they were taking. And so, yeah, I was just kind of shocked at that, but accepting the help and support was, it was a lot easier after I learned about this whole other way of going about it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it it does. It it really speaks to how kind of how encompassing eating disorders can be and also how important it is to think about the whole person, right? Eating mm-hmm. disorders are not, you know, just a mental health thing that have no impact on your physical health and vice versa. That it really is we come as people, as whole people, and we really need to think about what whole people need. And I also found really interesting in what you said a few minutes ago about hearing the same message sort of over and over uh, in treatment and and coming to a place where you were maybe able to hear that and, and sort of accept some of that. And I just want to highlight that 
that's really kind of a normal experience in treatment that sometimes people have this idea that they're going to, you know, go into treatment and they're going to get it all right. And they're going to be done and wrap it up with a neat little bow and move on. And that's not quite how these illnesses work. So it's not quite how treatment works. Sometimes people need to go back and do the same thing or a different thing and have multiple experiences in treatment. And that's okay. It's, it's sometimes really hard to, to feel like, oh, when will this ever end or work or whatever the, the, the words people are thinking, but really highlights how each time maybe plants a little seed or picks up a little piece and that at a certain point it kind of can come together. And I, I think it sounds like in your experience, the part of what made it sort of come together was really thinking about you as a whole person, not just like you as somebody with an eating disorder that needed to change these particular behaviors in order to, to move on. But that really we knit together recovery from all of the various pieces that are part of it. Does that resonate for you? Oh yeah, exactly. And you know, one thing, so something I've learned about is uh, it's called motivational interviewing and you know, the EDT text at the Emily program, like I don't know if this was their intention or what, but, you know, something they did was like, they would ask me, you know, like, why do you want to get better? You know, it's like, everyone can say, oh, you need to do this. You need to do that. It's going to like, it's going to be fine. Like all this. But I think that aspect of like really reaching to me and helping me find like actual reasons like that I personally want to get better and what, what makes me want to keep going, you know, like just having that really made the difference because then it felt like, you know, I wasn't being controlled by doctors and therapists and all this. It felt like I was in control and that it kind of was just eye opening in that, you know, it's my, it is my life. And like, what do I want to do with it? Absolutely. I'm thinking about a part in your mom's episode when she was talking about how eye-opening it was for her to learn that like it's sometimes the eating sort of voice was so loud for you that you had a hard time hearing your own voice. And I wonder if that too, like had a hard time, like knowing why you might want to get better. I think so many people can relate to that experience of just how loud the eating disorder is. Can you share a little bit what it felt like to be kind of be in that headspace to try to differentiate between like your true self and the influence of the eating disorder and how you were able to find sort of some clarity in there? Yeah. So we all have like values and beliefs and, you know, all that is just a human being. And one thing, like within the first few years of struggling with the eating disorder, you know, I didn't notice it at the time, but you know, I was not a nice person. I would get very angry with my mom. I would, you know, say hurtful things to a lot of people. And there kind of came a point where I would, like one time, I think my mom like started crying because of something I said. And at that point, it was kind of eye-opening where I was like, did I just make my mom cry? You know, and it kind of just, it brought me back to my baseline beliefs and my values and I value being a kind person and kind to others. And, you know, I just started seeing all these times when I was really overriding my values and my beliefs. And I feel like recognizing that having that self-awareness is what started giving me a little bit of separation between me and the eating disorder. 
I was able to then like separate it and just recognize, no, I Madison and would not say that to my mom. Like that had to have been the eating disorder and just little things like that is honestly what started helping me be able to differentiate. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. That's a, that's a great example because I, I know a lot of times people say like, eating sort of like got me to do things I would never want to do or never actually do. And here I am doing them. <laughs> and so I, I am doing them, but I really don't want to be. And that clarity of, of like you're saying, kind of having a little bit of a space to, to tie back to you, the sort of true who you are. Mm-hmm. What about the sort of really pr- practically speaking, we know another big piece of recovery is eating, right? Building a more peaceful relationship with food, which is difficult. Your mom talked uh, about your experience with a really limited list of safe foods or the foods that the eating disorder deemed acceptable to eat. And we know that uh, the eating part of eating disorder treatment can be some of the hardest work that happens. Uh, Increasing that food variety can be really overwhelming. Uh, Tell us about that process of overcoming some of your food fears and becoming more comfortable with food. Again, the Emily program was really helpful in that way, just because I, you know, they would bring us on outings and a lot of those outings was usually the fear food. Um, so like that, that little practice was helpful, but to be honest, it was just the practice, you know, like I thought at that point, even like looking at that food made me anxious. I mean, you know, I know obviously like, you know, couldn't, can't gain weight from looking at it, but as soon as you take like that first bite, you know, you're going to have all these thoughts in your head of like, oh, I know I'm going to gain weight from that and stuff. But then the next day when you see that you didn't, you didn't gain any weight from that one bite, you know, so then that gave me more like power to want to keep trying it. And eventually I would eat, you know, the whole dish and I, I would still be perfectly fine and alive the next day. And so honestly, just like that exposure and that practice was really the key thing in helping me um, with like the fear foods and expanding the foods that I was willing to eat. I mean, not easy at all, but it it was really, it's pretty much the only way I feel like to really get through that. Yeah. It's a, it's, if I had a magic wand, it's probably the one thing I would change about eating sort of recovery is making that part easier. Cause it's really, really hard, right. To just, and you got to practice so much and it yeah. takes a lot of repetition that like, Oh, you eat that food. And you're like, okay, I did that. I don't need to do it again. Yeah. It turns out you actually need yeah. to do it again. <laughs> and again, and again, mm-hmm. until it kind of loses that power. Right. But gosh, I would, I would make that part easier if I had that magic wand. Yeah. So let's pivot a little bit into like recovery as you've continued on your recovery journey and, and you sort of are seeing the eating disorder in a more retrospective kind of way. What have you found to be helpful in protecting your recovery, protecting your healing and protecting your mental health? To be honest, for me, it is almost treating the eating disorder as like an addiction. And when I say that, I mean, like, I don't weigh myself at home anymore. I don't follow diet culture or, you know, buy diet products or any of that. I completely cut it out because there is no way of like living half in the eating disorder and half out. It's kind of either all or nothing. And so by doing that, you know, it's like, I don't have to like think about it as much. And I mean, 
kind of like avoidance, but it's not really actually avoidance. <laughs> At least that's what I think. Um, like it's, it's working for me. I don't have to wake up and go step on the scale. I wake up and I go take my dog out, you know, it's just really like a shift of perspective that's really helped me like, you know, sticking with the recovery and along with like, you know, who I interact with on a daily basis and just, you know, choosing the environment wisely and doing what you know is going to be healthy for you and that knowing your triggers and um, like doing preventative things when you think a trigger might come up. So, I mean, it's a lot of work, but it's, it's what's helping. And do you find that as you do that work, you know, sort of back to where we started in that intersection of depression and eating disorders, do you find that doing those things helps you feel like you're managing the depression as well? How does that work in terms of the interface now? So like all the skills that I've learned throughout the years, you know, CBT, DBT, like I'm still using those on a daily basis. I don't think I'll ever like stop using those, but that really helps with the depression. As soon as I'm starting to feel more depressed, you know, I will change my environment or I'll put like a cold compress on my wrist, just anything to change. Like, I guess when you learn all those skills and all those knowledge, it kind of any situation you can like alter a little bit with those. And so doing that has just really helped the depression. And, you know, now it's like I have energy since I'm healthy and it all just really plays like all these parts together to kind of support yourself. Yeah. turns out that we're really all, you know, connected in our, <laughs> our brains and our bodies and that we're, you know, integration is a big piece of what people tend to find helpful in recovery. Tell us a little bit more about your plans. We're really excited about your plan to become a social worker. What ways has your personal experience influenced your career goals and and your hopes for the mental health field? Tell us about how you are imagining the future. One thing I haven't mentioned up until now was that uh, when I turned 18, you know, I had kind of been around the block, done all the medications, done all these different types of therapies and more so for the depression and nothing was working. And so when I turned 18, they decided or they suggested electroconvulsive therapy or otherwise known as ECT. They advertised this as being the golden standard, the last resort, kind of basically that this was my last piece of hope. And uh, so what was at first, you know, um, like three to 12 sessions as expected, quickly turned into 48 sessions within six months. And um, it kind of destroyed me or it did destroy me. You know, I lost all, all sorts of memories. Um, that time is just kind of a blur. And by the end of it, I was just kind of left as an, an unrecognizable person. Um, and because of that, they had put me on a six month mental health commitment. And so that experience towards the end of the six month mental health commitment, I had felt honestly, like I was scammed, you know, like something that, you know, they had told me like, this is like your best bet. This is your option. Well, all of a sudden it happened all this. And then I was put on like an involuntary mental health commitment because I was no longer me. And so I was just felt a lot of anger, a lot of almost like betrayal, you know, I mean, the doctors, I mean, 
I don't know how to really explain that feeling, but because of all of that, I started feeling, you know what, like this is still going on to people. Like, how is this even allowed to happen when there's like, when there's still no proof or solid evidence uh, like to the treatment? And so because of that, I kind of lit a passion in me, I lit a fire in me. I want to be able to like, something I'm really working on is getting my foot in the door with policy so that we can create more safety laws, um, like relating to some of these treatments, you know, like if the National Code of Archives, if they say that, you know, uh, using this treatment for greater than three months, the safety has not been proved, the, the efficiency hasn't been proved, well, then why are we doing it? You know, if there isn't the solid evidence in our evidence-based medicine, and I just feel like it's there's not enough attention being put on it, you know, and these are vulnerable patients. They're being told, you know, this is their last hope. This is the golden standard. Well, it's like, I just don't want what happened to me to happen to them or to happen to anyone else. And I know that there's already all these communities out there that are trying to stop this, but I'm... So it's kind of just a little passion where I want to stop that. And I, I, and if not stop it, then I at least need, we need at least need to put another safety measure in there to make sure that patients are being protected, that it's not being performed in excessive amount of times that all just something, because there's virtually no policy in any States pretty much besides age as to what happens with this. And so along with that, you know, like throughout spending years and years in treatment, you come to see that there's, there's a large group of people that are just readmitted time after time. And, you know, we do have this psychiatric um, inpatient bed shortage going on right now. And it's like, if everyone's going like time, not everyone, but if multiple people time after time, that means that something needs to change, you know? And so it's like, even the, the smallest things, I just think the whole treatment stuff, it can be improved. It can be more up to date with our research and what we're finding. And so, uh, kind of my goal as a social worker is I'm just, I'm ready to stand up for the people that at times it just doesn't feel like are being stood up for enough or being protected enough. So that's just kind of my goal. And, you know, one, a big thing is that like, no, I don't think a lot of people thought I would get to where I am at today towards the end of the commitment. I was kind of told, you know, next stop is like the state hospital or next stop, uh, or I was started to be labeled as um, a harm reduction patient, like chronic, where just get them stable and then send them off, you know, and people just that feeling of like people losing hope in me. That's something that honestly just set the fire. I don't want anyone else to feel like there's that they are lost hope because they're not. There's always hope. Like I just don't want anyone else to have to get to that point and get so low before that happens. Oh, Madison, that's incredible. That's really incredible, both what you went through and your passion to help prevent other people from going through that. I, I uh, as someone who does a lot of policy, welcome aboard <laughs> where you love your passion. Uh, it Because it makes a difference that I think people are inspired by by people's stories and it helps to really explain the issues and what needs to change. So I, I hear that in your story. I'm excited to hear more from you as you get into your career and see the change that you'll make, because I believe you will. And I really do. I think it's um, it's a, a number of things I, I heard in your beautiful description is really the, we need to make sure that we're 
really individualizing care based on what somebody needs and that we're finding the pieces that are helpful and that we're really leaning into the pieces that are helpful. And, and maybe that means we change how we do treatment. Maybe that means that we we don't rely on like, well, this is what the treatment manual says we should do. And so let's do it. That we really need to listen to people in their experience. And so you giving voice to your experience will, will only do good in the world. It's amazing to take something that was uh, sounds really difficult to have lived through but be able to turn it into something that can help other people is just awesome. I'm in awe of that. Thank you for that. I want to end our time together with a question that we ask everybody who shares their recovery story with us. And it's really to put yourself in the position of somebody listening to this and thinking, wow, that's incredible, but that's not going to work for me. Like that's not going to happen for me. I don't think I can get better. I don't think I can do that. What message would you offer that person? I also didn't think it would get better. I, you know, there was like six years where I was 100%. Well, I thought I was 100% sure that there was no changing. It wasn't going to get better than this. I would ask that person to close their eyes and think about if they didn't have their eating disorder or their mental illness, like think about what, what would your dream life be? You know, would you be out on the ocean somewhere? Would you be in a different state? Would you be like have a certain occupation? Like, you know, like, like we're just pretending right now. Like just really just imagine this. And then I would ask them to open their eyes and I would tell them that, you know what? It's actually going to be 10 times better than that. And I know you probably don't believe it right now and you might not believe it tomorrow, but I promise you, like, if you... If you take those first steps, if you, even if you don't believe them, you know, I didn't believe them, but if you physically just keep doing these steps, like it's going to get easier and it's going to get so much better. It is going to, my life right now, you know, I, when I close my eyes, like thinking of that picture back when I was, you know, really struggling, like my life right now is literally 10 times better than I even thought it could be without this. It's like, it really comes down to like, you and you only like you're you have to take those steps no one else can force you to take those steps they're gonna try and they can keep doing that but like nothing is going to change until you actually like just consistently start taking these little steps and then it's almost like the ball just starts rolling and you know things might not be easier at first but it's like now i can eat those fear foods without even having a second thought I never thought that that would ever be possible. I really didn't. And so just honestly, it's, I know it's hard to trust people, but as soon as you kind of like let loose a little bit and put some, you know, even if other people can hold like that hope for you and that faith and you just start doing them, it's just going to get better and better. You know, it might be hard at first, but it's completely worth it. Completely worth it. Madison, that was just so, so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Madison, so much for sharing your story with us today. It was so incredible to hear. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you'd like to learn more about the Emily Program and what we do, visit emilyprogram.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Emily Program. Piecemeal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Thanks for listening.